Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. I'll be back with a regular episode next week. But today, I want to introduce a brand new podcast that I think you're really going to like. Most of us don't do our best work alone. Having someone to balance out your weaknesses and push you to achieve more can really be helpful when you're going after a goal. And some of the top minds in business got to where they are with the help of a partner. That's the theme of the new podcast, One Plus One from Wondery. It's a show about some of the most successful partnerships in history, pairs of people who change the way we saw the world. You'll hear stories of cooperative success ranging from Beyonce and Jay-Z to Google founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page. Hosts Rico Galliano and Faith Saley chart the ups and downs of these partnerships and discuss their extraordinary legacies. You're about to hear a preview of the first episode of the series, which focuses on a couple of guys you may have heard of, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to One Plus One, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can also find a link in the episode notes. And tell your friends about it. You never know. Maybe one of them will be your key to legend status. It's January 1967 in London, England. John Lennon is sitting at the piano in his home in the suburbs, writing a new song. It's based on a newspaper account of a young socialite named Tara Brown, killed in a car crash. John comes up with something he thinks will work. But John's having trouble finishing the song. So he heads on over to Paul's house, just a few blocks from Abbey Road. Together, they finish John's verses and round out the tune by adding a fragment from one of Paul's, an old number he'd never managed to use. As soon as John hears Paul sing that couplet, he says, yeah, that's it. This is how John and Paul write music, quickly, intuitively, finishing each other's ideas. Sometimes they have trouble remembering who wrote what, that's how closely they work together. But they're not done with this song yet. They want to make it wilder, more avant-garde. Abbey Road Studios, February 10th, 1967. And the Beatles, the most famous band in the world, are throwing a party. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are there. So is Marianne Faithful and Graham Nash. Oh, and a 40-piece orchestra dressed in tuxedos, clown noses, and rubber bald caps. 
The bizarre attire is meant to loosen the buttoned-up, classically-trained musicians so they'll deliver what Paul wants. We'd like you to do some free-form improvisation. The orchestra is confused by the request. They want to please him. After all, he's Paul McCartney. But classical musicians don't really do free-form improvisation. Producer George Martin steps in. Okay, we don't want complete free-form. We want each individual musician to climb from lowest note to highest at his own pace. The orchestra nods. They try over and over to do what they're asked. John, dressed in a crushed velvet jacket and sipping wine from a teacup, watches from the sidelines. He wrote most of the song, but he's fine letting Paul coax the orchestra into performing what John calls an orgasm of sound. Paul tries to make John's concept come alive, urging the musicians to randomly play an ascending scale, growing louder until they climax on the same chord. On the eighth try, they finally nail it. Everyone knows they've just witnessed something special. As their songwriting grows more ambitious, John and Paul fall easily into these distinct roles. John, the conceptualizer, the big thinker. Paul, the arranger, the craftsman. I saw the photograph. On May 26, 1967, the five-minute, 12-second A Day in the Life is released as the final track on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. The album's immediately hailed as a masterpiece. A half-century later, Rolling Stone will still consider it the greatest album of all time. No one can guess where the Beatles will go next or that their partnership, which seems so strong, is already starting to crumble. From Wondery, I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Faith Saley, and this is One Plus One. Imagine you have a dream, an ambition, but you always feel like you're missing something. A piece of the puzzle you just can't put your finger on. But then you meet someone, a collaborator, a kindred spirit, or even a rival. A person that dares you maybe drives you to create something really inspiring. That chemistry of two people in a singular pursuit allows you to achieve the success and fame you never could have on your own. Together, you make a mark on the world. When you get right down to it, every collaboration is a love story with sparks when two great minds collaborate and compete. These kind of partnerships are what this series is all about. In upcoming episodes, we'll be sharing stories of power couples from technology and and sports and science, and you'll learn amazing things about them and their legacies. But today, the world of music. Indeed, some of the greatest collaborative pairs have been songwriters. Think of Rodgers and Hammerstein, George and Ira Gershwin. Somehow when it comes to salt crafting... And <laughs> salt and Peppa. We should do a Salt and Peppa series. Push when it, it comes to crafting the perfect three-minute pop song, it seems like two heads, a salt head and a pepper head, are often better than one. And of all these songwriting partnerships, 
I think we can say one team stands above the rest, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. In barely more than a decade together, they wrote hundreds of songs. And as of today, they sold over 600 million records. And we're talking 40 years after Lennon died. No question, the Beatles changed everything, and for a lot of people. The first song I ever loved was Yellow Submarine, although little did five-year-old me know it would go down between John and Paul like a year after they wrote that little number. In fact, from when they met in Liverpool to when they conquered the pop world, I can tell you there was more than a little drama. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, you can tell us, because you're going to tell us about it for the next six episodes. So take it away, Rico. The story of Lennon and McCartney. Thank you, Faith. This is episode one, Eyeball to Eyeball. Fall 1962, 24th Lynn Road in Liverpool. Paul and John sit across from each other in the cramped front room of Paul's house, guitars cradled in their laps. John's wearing his Buddy Holly horned-rimmed glasses. Paul's propped one foot up on the base of the coal-burning fireplace. They're hunched over a grammar school notebook containing the lyrics of a song Paul's been working on called 17. He's having trouble with the first verse. She was just 17. She'd never been a beauty queen. And we kind of looked at each other like, I said, I don't really like that line. They run through words that rhyme with queen until John comes up with an alternative. You know what I mean? That's better. Suggestive, maybe a little sexy, but vague. It draws the listener in. They jot down the new lyric and run through the song again. Eventually, they'll give it a better title, too. I saw her standing there. They worked together like this for years. John calls it eyeball to eyeball. The left-handed Paul says facing the right-handed John feels like looking into a mirror. By 1962, they've already written dozens of songs this way, including a few future hits. They call their band The Beatles, a nod to one of their favorite singers, Buddy Holly, and his band The Crickets. Never one to resist a pun, John changes one of the E's to an A. He wants to emphasize they've got the beat. But what's really going to make The Beatles stand out from scores of local bands performing covers are the songs John and Paul are writing. For now, the Beatles remain local favorites in Liverpool, but unknown everywhere else. Well, almost everywhere else. In the summer of 1960, a Liverpool promoter is shipping local bands to Hamburg, Germany. Rock and roll has caught fire over there, and there's huge demand for bands that can sing Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry covers in good English. One of the groups this promoter wants to send abroad is Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, featuring a talented drummer named Ringo Starr. That was just a preview of One Plus One. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The Tito's handmade vodka was ice cold, condensation trickling down the copper metal shaker. 
It's got to be fresh lime, they drawled. Tart, but balanced. They weren't normally this finicky about cocktail hour. But with Tito's, it had to be perfect. Simple syrup, the final ingredient. The sound of shaking filled the room to the brim. For the perfect pour at next week's book club, try the Tito's Gim Literature. Find the recipe at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. 